This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust, promoting an open discussion about gambling-related harm and the destruction it can cause. If you're affected by anything you hear and would like to reach out, visit beaconcounselingtrust.co.uk. Let's keep talking. Welcome back to Football Untold, the podcast that explores the darker side of the beautiful game. Thanks for checking us out, your streams and your downloads. Get involved on social media using the hashtag FootballUntold. In each episode of this podcast, we're hearing from professional footballers who are sharing their stories of problem gambling, what that means to them, how it impacted their lives and how they found a way through it. We've got Simon Howarth, uh, former Wales international, in the studio alongside Clark Carlisle. Uh, And our next guest is Sam Wedgbury. Now, Sam is 34 years of age. He's been on the books of 13 clubs in his career so far, starting at Worcester City before having spells at Sheffield United, Mansfield, Ferencvaros, Macclesfield, Altrincham, Stevenage, uh, Forest Green, Wrexham, Chesterfield, Buxton, Staleybridge, and now Worksop Town. He can play defence or in midfield, and he's currently playing the Makalele role in the Football Untold studios. Please welcome to the studio, Sam Wedgbury. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, not a problem at all. Great to see you. Did I, did I get all your clubs there and missing anything? Sounds a lot, yeah, but... I didn't realise I'd had that many. Well, I'm out of contract at the end of the season, so it's a good plug, that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ferenc Varos is the one that stands out. What was going on there? What was the story? Yeah, Sheffield United chairman, uh, Mr McCabe, bought the club out there. So a few of us got to go on loan out there for a few months and we went, won the league out there. And then I went back the second season, but then uh, I fractured my metatarsal. But uh, what a place to live, Budapest, unbelievable city. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really great to get you on. We've had uh, Si on uh, last uh, episode, a guy who played for a number of championship clubs, Wales International as well. We talked about you know his experience in the Premier League as well. Clark Carlisle as well, still in the studio before that as well. I want Sam, I think you're a really great guest to have on, not just in terms of your story, but also in the fact that your journey, if you like, through football is one which actually a lot of people experience. You know, that sometimes people assume that, you know, one club and enjoy your career and have a long, successful career. But for a lot of people... It's a job and you've got to find places to work and that can involve travel and it can be moving around and there's uncertainty and, and sort of life sometimes throws that at you. And maybe that's maybe something you've experienced through that career that you don't always know what's coming next, but then when you when you get the opportunity, you grab it. Yeah, it's a lot of what I put down to when I was gambling, but it, it stems from moving from place to place and not being settled in one place and um, the insecurity. A lot of it through football insecurity, not knowing you've got a contract next season. You do it, and that led to a lot of my gambling with with the escapism away from from these environments. But I'd always had my home based in Sheffield with my wife, but travelling around and just take its toll on you. And now I'm happy that I'm sort of settled, and obviously I've got a job, which pays my my my, my wages basically, and my football money now is just an added bonus. So. Um, the the big thing for me the last three years since I've gone part time I'm a lot happier because there's not as much uncertainty of getting contracts for next season and and these things so yeah it's uh, I'm thankful it's took me to all these different places because I've had different life experiences and speaking to different people of different backgrounds and beliefs and but obviously now I'm uh, I'm happy that I'm settled in Sheffield with my my wife and three kids what's the reality of that from a from a professional point of view is it about like is it one-year contracts or is it like a three-year contract but actually a new manager comes in and straight away you're thinking, I'm not going to be part of this guy's plan. So there's un- 
I guess uncertainty puts you in a pretty vulnerable position because you're thinking, and am I as good as what they've got in their squad or am I going to fit into this other squad? It's, yeah, non-league especially, so conference downwards, there is a lot of one-year contracts, um, which doesn't really... You always obviously try and get as many many years as you can on a deal. And I was quite fortunate at Forest Green, I signed two years and a couple of other clubs. But yeah, it, it, it makes you so insecure in terms of you've got no sort of stability. And me as a person, I cope better with structure and stability. So it's like, right, moving, you can't even afford to really buy a house. If you rent, it's most your money gone when you've got a mortgage in, in your city where you live in. It's so difficult to, 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 to fathom that, really, moving away. And I was lucky, really, at Forest Green, there was a clubhouse where we got to live for three years where we didn't have to pay for, and Wrexham was the same. But everywhere else, it's been trying to find somewhere to to get your head down as cheap as possible really because obviously you're not earning the money that that other higher up the leagues where you can potentially relocate by a house it's sort of up and down the motorway the M1 a lot for me with a few car schools which are out the pocket a bit I think that stability thing is 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 so crucial, and I think a lot of people listening to this will think oh, that's been that's me. And actually, um, when we talk about professional footballers, particularly at clubs at, at this level as well, previous episodes we talked about you know life in the Championship, life in the in the Premier League as well. The money is very different, isn't it, at that level as well? And I think maybe people's expectations of oh, he's a footballer, he's had a long career in football, he must be rolling in it by now. The reality of that within the sort of clubs you're talking about is is a little bit different to maybe the perceptions. Of course it is, but if you're on forty grand a year, fifty grand a year, lower down, it, you're doing your dream job for that. So it's like, what else are you going to be doing? What you love doing? So there is that side to it, yeah, financially, but. I've done a job that I've absolutely loved doing in terms of training daily and playing matches and going to nice grounds and obviously meeting people. You meet lots of people through through your career. So on that front, yeah, financially it might not be, but the experience is the same. You're still doing something you love doing. Do you, do you see people you used to go to school with and stuff? They must be like, oh, where you got way off to next and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I've, I've moved cities now, so it's a lot, a lot harder. Obviously, I'm based uh, in Oldbury which is in the West Midlands originally and then when I was 16 I moved to Sheffield United um, where I met my partner so that was obviously I don't see as many of my school friends and stuff now but yeah it's another club when you speak to people that have retired and it's like oh you got another where, where are you playing this year where, what part of the country so yeah it's uh, but coming back onto the gambling side living away helped me gamble because I had nobody to answer to. My wife was in Sheffield training as a nurse and shit. So I had lots of time on my own, which led to some dark times with my gambling. Um, so that had obviously an effect. Can, can I ask you, just from an age point of view, I don't like to point this out, you're slightly younger than the, the previous guys. There was a, Again. <laughs> a roll on the shoulders from Cy and Clark there. But like the the experience of sort of the, the, the smoky bookmakers... Um, which is a lot of people experience that or, or remember that growing up. I'm guessing from your point of view, as you reach down the hole, you're, you're entering, we're into, we're in the internet age, aren't we? I know you guys know the internet, right? Before you say, right? <laughs> but these lights, these, these, these guys are on the information superhighway, but you're like, you're on the, you're on the smartphone. And yeah. I, I just wanted to sort of from a, from a starting point of view, from a, what does, what did gambling or what did gambling look like to start off with? For me, uh, we used to go to the casino, and it started out as a free bet and there was a curry night on a Tuesday night. So me and my friends, we used to go and you place, because you used to get £5 
red or black. So you put money on one and you free bet on the other. So you made a free five pound. Obviously, I just remember from the first time I did that, I seriously was hooked. I, I, I know I was hooked from second one. I always had things as a kid growing up. But I had love. I had everything I needed. I had a great childhood, two great parents. But I always had tendencies for, say, gaming. or I'd always do stuff to excess as a kid. Which then, obviously, when I first stepped foot in the in the casino, then it started. We meet there, excuses, watch football. We watch Champions League in the casino. We never watched it. We used to just stand on the roulette tables, get your free bet. That'd go. Then you'd start your own money. Uh, so it was that. But obviously, I used to. I did used to go into the bookies as well. But smartphone, it's so easy to do. Um, and I'll tell a story in a bit about how bad it it does get and. On your smartphone, it's so accessible. I was with one betting company. Obviously, I won't name them, but I used to message a woman and I'd lose some bets on my online and I'd, I'd just message this woman saying, I didn't mean to put that bet on. Um, I pressed the wrong button and she'd refunded me as a free bet. Whereas now, I look back, that kept me in because I was a good customer and I kept betting and obviously giving more money than what I had. That, that, that it's, it's so interesting you say there that it was, it was, it was as simple as that of, I like this feeling. Let's I've pursue never, this. I've never had a feeling like it. I, I, I genuinely say it, and I don't miss it. But nothing has ever replicated that feeling of when my number comes in on on the roulette table or placing that bet for the split second. There's no feeling like I've got three beautiful boys, which I'm so thankful for. But it's I, I can never replicate that, and I, I, I never I never really want to because. It's uh, it's dangerous. What did what did you feel it was giving you? What what, what was that feeling? Was there was there a, 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 a void that you thought this is it? This is the thing I've been looking for. Yeah, at the start it was the buzz of placing the bet and winning when it won. A few times I, I'd win, but then it was chasing the losses, and then it was right. I can win that back, and in my head, I could never lose enough. And that's the that's the scary thing as a problem gambler, and a compulsive gambler. I would. If you win a grand, you want two, you win two, you want four. There's no limit to what you want to win, but then there's no limit to what you'll lose. And that's where it's very scary because things what you're doing to fund your gambling are very, very harmful. That idea of going into a casino with your, with your, with your club mates, with your teammates, um, was obviously within that the culture of socialising and so on and so forth. When you were doing the stuff on your phone, was that echoing things that other players were doing? Was there a culture, you know, of WhatsApp messages around who who was doing what? Was that was that part of that same culture, do you think? Yeah, it's rife. Um, Non-league as well, more so, because people, you want money and you think, oh, I can... I, in my head, I used to convince myself, I'll win 100 quid a day, that's 700 quid a week, that's a nice little income for me. That never happened because I was compulsive. And I used to get a feeling before the bookies, wherever I went in, I used to get this pit in my stomach, like a sick feeling, because I knew if I was going in with any amount of money, I was losing it. I wasn't coming out winning. And the only time towards the end, I wasn't getting any urges from, any any joy, enjoyment from winning or losing or placing. It was just, I was just like a robot. Place the bet, split second, oh, it loses, I go again. And it, it was just a split second of pressing the button to it losing or winning. I wasn't having any feeling towards it and I was just absolutely exhausted. I would sleep better when I couldn't get any money. I didn't have any avenues to get money and that's when I'd sleep better. Whereas before, if I won, I'd cash it, be in the wash bag in the boot of the car, knew it was there. Or I could get some money from my bank, overdraft, whatever, I'd be in the toilet 
most of the night my wife would be like wait what are you doing in there oh, I've got a bad stomach and I'd be spinning on the roulette losing everything then I'd come in sleep with my phone under my pillow because I didn't want her to see my emails getting to the postman cancelling my statements to come back to the house and things like this um, and then obviously it's just all one big lie that you live in and it all comes to a head eventually what were the emails saying what sort of things were coming it's through it's just free bets or whatever coming through but I found GA uh, Gamblers through, Anonymous Gamblers yeah. Anonymous yeah I went on on site and looked up because I didn't realise there was bits of help through the PFA and stuff then so I did it all off my own back um, and found GA through another lad that I played football with he was attending so he was like oh come and first time round I went probably did three or four weeks and did the old stupid thing of I'm not as bad as them in there they're all down and outs and, they, and there's teachers in there there's doctors there's a lot, There's all these people that this addiction takes control of and they're professional people so it's like it was just and then obviously something clicked within them two or three weeks or four weeks that I am like these so what were, what were those moments for you what's that moment for you that goes here's, here's a dead cert clear obvious sign that I'm a problem gambler um for me obviously I don't like to talk about sums of money and things like that and I totally own my gambling I know there's hundreds of thousands of non-problem gamblers and that and I'm not bitter or resentful towards it but for me I got a pay up of over 20,000 pounds um which to me at that time was a lot of money well it is to anybody and I'd done it all within an hour on the roulette and it wasn't it was on my iPad on the roulette and I've still got the iPad to this day I keep it it's got a big crack down the screen because I'd been putting all these large sums of money on numbers and the last spin I had I had 25p's on the number and the one that I'd had loaded up came in and won and it was like oh my and I just got the iPad and pushed it and put a big crack down I've still got it at home and it reminds me of like where I was at but I lived with a lad and he won't mind me mentioning his name Peter Hartley he's a great lad and we lived together and he was living all my highs and lows. And he was like, listen, you, you're gonna have to, we're gonna, I'm going to have to move out because it's just getting too much. Night before a game and he's living the highs and lows with me. I'm walking around the living room, hands on the head, I've won, I'm cheering or I've lost, I'm down. And he's like, I'm living all this through. And in the end, obviously, I ended up getting my pay up and going, like, which was beneficial. And we're friends, so he doesn't. But it was just even things like that what I was putting him through. That's a, twenty thousand pounds in an hour, in an hour, and is is a, a huge amount of money, obviously, to lose. But what what did that mean to you at that time? Because obviously, there's that you talked about almost that habitual robotic element of it. Was the value of that money inconsequential? Could you see that? Were you thinking, oh, I'll set this will pay for Disneyland or whatever, yeah. or, or was it just that there was still money in the pot, so you could just keep going? It, it was obviously the addictions took hold of you then, and I seen that twenty. 20 grand as I can make 100 here, I can make this. So that was my thinking. It wasn't, and then obviously it had all gone within an hour. And then my wife now, she she's brilliant. I can talk to her about anything. And early on in my recovery through GA, the first, you have the golden hour with your partner. And that, this was something that was weighing on my chest that I had to tell her. And it was from years before. And there were some things that I had to tell her and say, listen, this, this, and this. You know that time when I had that money and it all went and I said I lost it? I had a once going to the petrol station in Sheffield because I had a large sum of cash on me and I'd lost it all in the casino on the way home and she was like oh where's that money and I went oh, I was checking my pockets convincing myself that 
I'd lost this money in the petrol station. Went into the petrol station. Woman said, you need to check the CCTV. I've lost X amount of money uh, on the forecourt. And I knew I hadn't. And all these stupid things. Now you look back and think, what what was I doing? But I was in the midst of addiction. And like I say, I, I fully own it. And I'm not resentful towards anyone. I'm sort of thankful that I've gone through that chapter in my life now. And I'm in recovery and I'm seeing a positive life. That story echoes something that, that Sai Howarth was talking about, Clark Carlisle as well, that actually there's a moment where it goes beyond the money and it goes beyond the placing of the bet. It comes into the, the lie, the deceit, the what can I say to deflect from this situation? And you must have found yourself walking back to that petrol station thinking, what were you thinking, what am I doing here? Or were you thinking, yeah. I just need to, I need to, I need to fulfill this. Like I need to play this out just to, to convince myself that I've said or done the right thing. You convince yourself because you're trying to buy into your own lie. And that's the sad thing. And the, that that's where I was at in my head, like not logically thinking, oh, just tell her you've lost the money in the casino. But well, obviously I couldn't because then she'd want to see the bank statements and she'd want to see all these things which uncover my lie. But you're a, you're the best liar ever. You can convince anyone of everything until you've got no other avenues to go down, which we've heard heard before. It's you, you, It all comes to a head. You get found out. And I'm lucky that I got caught in the bookies the second time. And But I, th- I believe it was a cry for help because I knew I'd get found out. What, can, you, can you talk through that? Yeah, I had family up. So we had, had a nice little get-together at my house. Um we always had a curry and my mum and dad had come up from the Midlands at the time. Uh, my mother-in-law, father-in-law, brother-in-law, it was a lovely, having a lovely time. And I said to my wife, oh, I need to go and uh, fill the car up and get some uh, bread for tomorrow. And I was in the bookies for literally two and a half hours. And I, I thought I'd been gone half an hour. And my phone was on the screen, like just sat there. And I was just spinning away. My phone was ringing, didn't even know I had 12 missed calls. My wife thought I'd been in a, a bad car accident. Where is he? He's gone to get like bread and fill the car up so they checked the petrol stations and she went by chance I just thought I'd check Ladbrokes because I told her I wasn't betting I said oh yeah yeah I've been to GA this last time and I'm not doing it she knew I was um, and she found her sister I was round the corner she came in and looked but she couldn't see me and it was only by chance her sister came in checked round the corner and who's there me on the roulette machine and I walked out of the bookies got the money I'd had in the roulette machine it was a bit and I gave it my wife and I went, look, I've won, I've won. And she just threw it in my face. And I'm like, no, I told you, this is the last time. A couple of times you've been caught now and blah, blah, blah. And, and I had to obviously tell her everything, which I was, I did from day one, which has helped me now nearly six years down the line. Was that a big reality moment? It was thrown back in your face, like, what is the value of this when it comes with the lies and the avoidance of this social occasion and, and the deceit that comes with that? Was that, like, was that like a reality moment? Did it sink in at that point that you think, oh, right. I'm in trouble, yeah, because she was going to leave me. And it's her, her mum who basically said, listen, he needs help, blah, blah, blah. So then I found, obviously, back to GA and stuff and found that. And it was her mum that she was, my wife's very headstrong. She's like that. She's not materialistic in the slightest. So the money she's not interested in. It was just, she's headstrong. And if I can be deceitful once and twice, I can do it a third time. So it was like for her, that the deceit, she always says it. She says it's the deceit. That's the biggest thing I thought I knew who I lived with. And the person I loved, and you were lying to me, and this and that. But I told her that it was the addiction. It's not me, and she obviously knows that now. But it was the addiction taking over, and um, 
I'm thankful she's forgiven me. We've been together for nearly 17 years now, so it's something that's made us stronger. Does she ever mention that? Or do you ever talk about that? Never. That day? Ne- never. Um, sometimes we mention things and, and little things, like, but she's never in a way where she throws it up in my face. She's never done that. And I think for her to forgive me, that's that's I'm thankful of. But six years down there, I know I did wrong and she's obviously chose to forgive me and she says that she's never never once thrown anything in my face which I think helps with my recovery she's brilliant with my meetings anything I'm doing she's first class with and she, she'll help me sometimes you know if I'm chairing and things like that she'll help me put into a meeting and what, what can make it sort of work she's very smart no, it's brilliant. Brilliant to have that sort of support. And that's probably not something we've touched on so far in terms of the podcast about having those people in your lives who, when you when you need the support, it's absolutely there. This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust. If you'd like to reach out, visit beaconcounsellingtrust.co.uk. Sometimes when people talk about recovery or people re- recognising the problem, I think they have this sort of almost 1990s idea that you disappear off to the priory and then you come back six months later and everything's fine but presumably you had that day and then presumably you you had to go back into training you go had to go back into to play in that you went back into those dressing rooms with those same conversations that people are having about what they were winning what they were losing so you don't get that moment of respite presumably it's very it is very difficult because there's temptation around you at all times but there's things i do the card schools and things like that on the bus i'd try and sit at the front of the bus and just stay away from it and not... Obviously, you're going to hear the odd thing here and there, but the thing for me was I I was fortunate enough I could give my wife full control of all the money and I know not everybody can do that, but I was in that position where it was very hard for me to have a bet and I'm not saying I couldn't have had one because if you're in that mist of... You can always find a way, but for me it was telling people around me from an early stage, which obviously you do it when you're, you're good and ready, but... Obviously, I had Simon as my manager, and since I've been in recovery, the last three or four managers I've had, I tell them on the day of signing, listen, I'm a gambling addict, blah, blah, blah. I don't even do everything. He's like, games at the end, five-a-side, or five-a-man, or do this, or there's a forfeit on it. I don't do that. So whatever you want to do, you do it. I'm not taking part in that. No, I think, let's say it's worth bringing you in at at this point. I I mean, absolutely full credit for for Sam for, for being so open and honest about about that story and that journey so far. I mean, it's one of them, isn't it? From a footballing point, people presume you've made it. Like there's there's like a, you're doing it. You're doing the thing we all, remember when we used to play as a kid and now it's happening for you. There's a presumption that there are no problems, that that, that everything's a go, going according to plan. And I guess that's clearly not the case. And I guess those opportunities to either signpost that, be made aware of it, spot it within someone in the dressing room. We've almost got to be educated to know what those signs are so that a manager might spot it or somebody within a club might spot it or even, you know, much wider, someone within a workplace would, would spot that there's a potential issue there. Sam's touched on, you know, insecure with moving clubs. It's, it's the first time I've heard somebody talk in recovery about that affecting somebody. You know, you, you look at the clubs, okay, he's moved around, but as he said, you know, he's a professional footballer. You wouldn't think that that would cause a problem. Sam's, Sam's problem has been driven by being lonely, by being insecure, by not having that stability and security. So it's been fascinating for me to listen to that and and that behind him and some of his stories, you know, the desperation in it, you know, I can relate to that. I'm sure Clark doesn't really hit home what it must be like not having the security of a contract or a bigger wage and in that desperation of, you know, pretending that you've lost money on the forecourt and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's really powerful. And 
like you said, hopefully we can get enough education into people to recognise all the issues we've touched on. That idea, Clark, and actually, you know, it echoes your story as well around, you know, contracts and wages and salaries being different and stuff like that. But also, in our 20s, we do put a lot of emphasis around ourselves and our workplace and we define ourselves, don't we, of whether or not we are successful as to what career or job we've got. But actually, it's interesting to hear that actually that the stability or those common threads that were actually where the value was, was actually in the family life, was in, you know, the home life or within the kids as well. To a certain extent, I guess you've you've got to, you've got to have those negative experiences before you fully understand what that positive experience can, can come. But actually full credit to sort of Sam's team, if you like, the team of people around him who were able to get him through. And I guess I'd hope that people listening to this would, would also be able to think, right, well, who, who's got my back? And if mm. it's not somebody I could recognise, where can I find the sorts of people who can be, you know, the person to put their arm around or who can say, let's go and do this. Let's go and have this conversation. Or maybe let's recognise that there's something that's maybe not, right in this situation 100 percent, mate. you know just sam hearing you speak there and and hearing that that support and love from your family it um you know it resonates with me i love it so much you and i are both blessed that we've we've had that family support it is so important um uh, the flip side of that is you can have all the family support in the world but if you don't take the step to change it's not going to happen We've, we've seen numerous, you know, uh, examples of, of high-profile celebrities and players in the past who've had all the support given to them in the world. But if they haven't got that within them to turn and face in that direction and then engage with that support, it's not going to happen. And that's what I want. Everyone needs to hear. Because the, the moment of, of um, you know, you said your, your hook with gambling, I think is one of the most dangerous moments. Uh, the, the one that you're talking about there, where when you place the bet and it's that, you know, the spin of the roulette and it's like that 10 seconds of uncertainty and it's that it's, it's in that moment that you thrive, the outcome's largely relevant in the beginning. You've got that intense buzz, the hit, almost like a drug hit. That is the hardest one to turn away from. So, mate, I, I, I commend you on your journey so far and there's so many aspects of it that resonate with me one that struck was you know people often think that gambling consumes your mind when you've got uh, no money but equally when you've got loads of money as well because that breeds opportunity for you to carry on and feed this you don't just lose sleep in loss you lose it in win as well because you know they're uh, um, the fuel's there in the tank for you to go again. I totally empathise with that one. One more thing you said is talking about the, the daily routines that go on at the football club that are everyday business, but unbeknownst to people, they actually underpin that kind of, uh, of gambling you know, dynamic where, oh, just a fiver a man for this. Uh, and, you know, well, we will do the sweepstake for that. Or let's have a game of darts, 20 quid a man, you know, stuff like that. They're casual behaviours, but to some people they can be really detrimental. And where I want to give you huge props is, is you stepped back into that environment, having had a 15-year career of an identity as someone who's in that. People underestimate the identity you have in the dressing room. You're the joker. You're the gambler. You're, you're the you know the one who goes out with the ladies or the guys or whatever. Once you've established that, it's so hard to change because everyone's expectations are for you to fulfil that role. 
So for you to go back into that environment, mate, stand against everything that you've represented for 15 years and then tell every new manager, look, this is me and this is what I stand for and you've got to accommodate it. Kudos to you, my friend. Thank that you. is yeah, awesome. I think, I think coming back in on, obviously, what Clark said there, I was very fortunate the managers that I told... So I had some John Sheridan, Martin Allen, uh, Dean Keats, obviously Simon, um, and I told them from day one, and not one of them turned and not one of them had a negative reaction to it. It was, oh, my mate said that, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? They had somebody that they could relate to, or obviously that, that made it easier for me, but obviously recovery is not easy. I know like people see it and there'll be people watching the podcast and, and listening to it that are early on in recovery. And it isn't easy because I've done something for so long that has gone out of my life. And that's what I struggled with at first. I'd had enough of doing it, don't get me wrong. But it was like, wow, I spent eight, day, eight, eight hours a day in the bookies. What do I do now? I've got this free time. And that was when, obviously, I was structuring my days then. And nine o'clock, do this. Ten o'clock, I had to do that. I needed that structure. I was lucky. Sort of had football. But it got to the point with football where I was missing training. I wasn't turning in. And it was... A big spiral of, of things so that was hard to fill the void at first and obviously I, I did it so it's tough full credit no full credit it just takes great strength to go back into an environment where you're seen as this person as a, as a completely different you know human being and yeah huge huge credit to you for that time i mean that that's just when clark mentioned it it's just really hit on how difficult that must have been for you to do that and yeah, you're not you're not the joker, you're not the gambler, you're not the guy who might have a tip for us. You're suddenly, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to be. And I think that takes, takes a lot of strength. Though. Yeah, I had a lot of troubles early on with within my GA recovery. And obviously, I keep mentioning it, but it's, it's changed my life positively. So that's why I'm a bit a bigger advocate of it. But for me, it was I was at a point then because within recovery, doing good deeds and things within my Just For Today programme and... I was doing lots for everybody else, couldn't say no, but I couldn't make myself happy. So it was getting the balance. And now it took probably five years down the line, six years down the line now to where I can say no to things. I can, within reason, do you know what I mean? I can, I can, and I can live with that comfortably now. I don't have to people please all the time. You realise the people around you are the ones that are there through thick and, and thin. So it's like my wife and there's people like you say which is my support system I'm so lucky to have it because not everybody gets that but it's um, it's hard it's hard when you've done something for so long to just stop doing it and then right change my life now and become this brilliant person you don't it takes a lot of time absolutely and it's a, it, it, it's an ongoing journey and I think for a lot of people listening to this as well it's about the understanding that it's a an ongoing journey that it's not a and then they stopped, you know, a little bit like in the soap opera where, you know, the alcoholic pulls the bottle of whiskey down the sink and then yeah. the, the new plot line starts the following Monday. I think that's the thing around a- asking for support, seeking support. And actually, if you don't get the right support at the right place, I mean, you talked about the managers that they all were positive, but actually, if there's if there is negativity that you there you do have enough value in yourself and you should value your yourself enough to think, okay, that avenue didn't open up for me. Let's look down a different avenue because quite clearly the, the pathways to a better place are there and we've, we've heard about them uh, on the podcast so far and then but people might not find them straight away and that's one of the things we I really hope to come back and you touched on it yourself Sam when you talked about you know um, an almost instant relapse that these 
this isn't just a, a and we sail off into the sunset experience. This is a, you'll get to the sunset, but you'll have to go this way and then that way. And it might be difficult at this point. You might have to turn back, but there's an opportunity there for you to get that view. Yeah, of course it is. The first thing is it's admitting you got the problem and that you're powerless to it. That was the hardest thing for me because in my head it had brought me so much enjoyment and so many wins, but then t- towards the end, obviously it didn't. So the first that was admitting I was powerless, which I did, but it's it's so difficult um, to do, and you've got you've got to do that. But there is help out there. But obviously, all these do is give you tools to help you and try and prevent you going back to to relapsing. They're, they're only tools because we're in. I'm in a J room two hours a week. What do I do when I'm not in the J room? Well, I touch base with other members and things like that. And obviously, I just hope anybody watching that is really struggling doesn't see a way out. There is a, there is a way out, and I never got to the point thankfully where I was suicidal but I got to the point where I was thinking of stupid things to get money to fund to, to clear debts oh if I crash my car into that I'll get this and all that isn't logical do you know what I mean so it's there's help out there it's just if you're gambling beyond your means you, you obviously got got a problem and that doesn't mean you're gambling thousands you might only earn a five pound a week and you're gambling six you're living beyond your means so it's addressing it before it gets to that and Hopefully we can do that within the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Don't forget, uh, throughout listening to the podcast, you can get involved on social media. Uh, Drop us a message. uh, Hashtag football untold thanks to sam wedgbury all our contributors si howarth uh, clark carlisle uh, to football untold don't forget hit subscribe on the podcast now thank you for your streams and downloads we'll be back very soon this podcast is sponsored by nhs lancashire and south cumbria integrated care board and beacon counseling trust promoting an open discussion about gambling related harm and the destruction it can cause if you've been affected by anything you've heard and would like to reach out visit beaconcounselingtrust.co.uk Let's keep talking.